Well, if you would, would you open your Bibles to Galatians? We're going to be reading in chapter 5. And if you would, would you stand for the reading of the inspired word of God? Pray with me. Father, we easily underestimate the power of your word to transform us, to bring life to us, penetrate our doubts and our defenses with your word. Woo us by your love. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh." But through love, serve one another. You may be seated. Benjamin Franklin was into virtue, as many of the founding fathers of our country were. In fact, the 18th century was, well, it was a time when self-discipline was lauded, almost uh, worshipped. Franklin was in particular interested in 13 virtues. And uh, he defined them in this way. Number one was temperance, which means eat not to dullness and drink not to elevation. Number two is silence. Speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling uh, conversation. Number three was order. Let all your things have their place. Each part of your business have its time. The fourth resolution, resolve to perform what you ought and perform without fail what you resolve. And on he went, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, and last of all, humility. Imitate Socrates and Jesus. Now, 
Franklin was not only interested in these virtues, but he kept a meticulous record of how he did uh, on each of them every single day. He carried a small notebook uh, with him, and he sought uh, to honestly record those moments uh, where he failed to live out his uh, virtues. He thought that if he could make it through 13 weeks without a single demerit, that he would have achieved his goal of being a virtuous uh, person. Well, as you can imagine, each day and each week, things would start to accumulate on these uh, pages. And after 13 weeks, uh, he would get out an eraser and he would clean the pages off. This went on for a very long time and eventually these pages became very thin and wore holes in them. And even after Franklin had become a world figure, he still kept this little notebook, though he replaced the paper with ivory sheets, which could tolerate erasing far better. He never got 13 weeks. Now, this is the burden of moralism. Franklin devised his own uh, morality. He chose his own virtues, some of which may sound like they're Christian, but in fact they're really probably, none of them really are uh, exactly Christian. And he, the burden is to write all your failures down and look at them. That's just the weight of that. Forgiveness wasn't one of Franklin's virtues, though it's one of the chief virtues of Christianity. And if you're uh, here uh, as someone who hasn't embraced Christianity, we're honored you're uh, present. I just want you to understand Franklin's version of virtue is not Jesus' virtue, uh, Jesus' virtues. Christian Smith uh, wrote a book that captured a, a multi-year study of the spiritual and religious lives of adolescents in America. And he describes the view of Christianity uh, that students have uh, growing up in uh, the church. And he captured it with three words, therapeutic, moralistic, deism. Deism means that the students thought of God as remote and largely uninvolved in their lives, uh, except, well, if there was a crisis, he might drop in on you. Uh, therapeutic, which means that the students thought that God was primarily interested in their happiness. And moralistic, meaning that God wanted them to be good. In other words, what students growing up in evangelical churches, by and large, took away uh, from their upbringing was that God wants them to be happy, uh, good, and mostly he isn't very involved in the day-to-day -day of their lives. Now, if you're here and you're a student, I want you to know this is not Christianity. I hope that nothing that's happening here is leading you to think that that somehow is uh, Christianity. Uh, if that's how you actually think about what God wants from you, you are living under the burden of moralism. And it's no wonder that many of our children turn away from Christianity once they leave home because they're turning away from what is actually not Christianity. 
If attending church leaves you beat down and uh, burdened uh, when the service is over, it's likely, too, that you are experiencing the burden of moralism. Somehow the gospel's been muted, the relationship between the love of God and the grace of God revealed in Christ and the holiness and purity of God has gotten, it's gotten out of balance. Only the gospel can free you from the burden of moralism and lead you to live a life of joyful obedience. Now let me put some definition around this. Moralism is not morality. Moralism is not legalism, but it's a close relative. It's kind of like the relationship between bittersweet and milk chocolate. Legalism usually adds things to God's revealed will. Jesus in the Gospels uh, frequently criticized the religious leaders of his day for adding man-made teachings in and commandments uh, to what God required. And plenty of churches have done uh, the same. Uh, I suppose the most common list that characterizes this is the forbidding of uh, movies, dancing, and having dress codes. Many Christians have done this. They've fallen into this when they've taken some implication they've drawn from Scripture. Uh, And what they've done is maybe it's a personal application and they've decided that is God's will for everybody. And of course, a pastor can do that. A pastor can take some uh, application that they've developed and made it into a law. When that happens, uh, one has forgotten this fundamental principle that Jesus Christ alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the commandments of men. That's one part of what the freedom of the gospel brings. However, gospel freedom is not permission to do anything that you want. It's not freedom from living out the Ten Commandments. It's not freedom from morality. No, the gospel gives us with new hearts, new minds, and new spirits The Holy Spirit himself writes the Ten Commandments into the deepest parts of who we are, which the Bible calls our hearts. And he gives us a new desire to obey. And gospel freedom is the freedom from having to live under the burden of the law. And it is what the Galatians were tempted to do. In fact, Paul, through the the burden of this letter, its principal argument is to show Uh, that the burden of the law is not the gospel. Adding uh, the law to Jesus uh, Christ as if what he had done is not enough uh, is a denial of uh, the gospel. Of course, this is what those uh, Judaizing Christians had come and taught in this church, that the Galatians who were Gentiles needed to be circumcised, observe the Jewish uh, feasts, and come on underneath the yoke of the law. What are the consequences of doing this? Of adding morality, excuse me, I should say moralism, uh, to, to Jesus? Well, Paul writes some of his sharpest words in this letter. And, and look at them. If you have your Bible open to verses 2 through 4. If you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no value to you. 
He says, if you're trying to be acceptable to God or yourself or others by keeping the Ten Commandments, then you are severed from Christ. If you are circumcised, you are obligated to keep the entire law. In other words, Jesus will do you no good. And you will take on a crushing burden. Well, how can that be? Uh, Circumcision might seem like just a minor uh, surgery. Circumcision was given to the people of God, given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that was given to him and all the promises. And by receiving it, we're saying, I'm an heir to those promises. I have to believe them to receive what's uh, promised. But through the centuries, it became uh, common uh, in Jewish circles to think of circumcision as actually having come from Moses, and that to be circumcised was not simply to identify as a Jewish person religiously, but to come under the yoke of the law. That's how the teachers in Jesus In fact, Jesus, a famous saying about come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden uh, because my yoke is light. That's a a reference to the opposite of what the teachers in Jesus' day taught about the yoke of the law. What's at stake is that our right standing with God, God's acceptance of us, or to use the, the term that Paul uses, our justification Getting circumcised, uh, Paul says, is a way of saying that sinners have to do something to get right with God. And you see, it's just this simple. Either people are justified before God partly by what they do in addition to what Jesus has done, or completely and only by what Jesus does. There's nothing in between. There's no third option. To seek justification by faith is to ground it in what Jesus has done and to seek it through legal works on the basis of your behavior or your performance is, in fact, to deny the gospel. And you face three fatal consequences. The first is you make Christ utterly useless. If you won't let Jesus do everything to make you acceptable to God, then he can do nothing for you. As far as justification is concerned, as far as being accepted by God, if you won't let Jesus do everything for you, then he can do nothing for you. And you become a debtor to God's law, and as we've talked about it, no one can keep that law perfectly Only Jesus, uh, who was fully God and and fully human without sin, kept it perfectly. It's a terrible burden to think you have to keep it in order to be right with God. And you're severed from Christ. You have fallen away from uh, grace. And when Paul writes this, he is not saying uh, to the Galatians, they are not Christ followers. If you look down in verse 10, it'll become clear that what Paul is saying is that he's confident that as they hear this letter read, that they'll be persuaded. They'll come back to the truth. They'll embrace his arguments. Uh, They they will come to see the gospel with clarity. 
So what is he saying in verse 4? Well, what he's saying is, I want to warn you that those who trust in their own efforts for salvation are lost, period. No matter even if uh, you are convinced that you were converted or you say that you feel that Christ has changed you. This is the acid test of whether, in fact, you've received salvation from Jesus uh, Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not is whether he has done it all for you or not. Now, as I've been trying to say as we've moved through Galatians, that many church people are actually deaf uh, to these warnings, and they really haven't understood with clarity uh, the message of the gospel. They're determined to carry the burden of moralism, just like Franklin did. And often, uh, it's because obedience looks so much like moralism that it can be confused with the two. It looks externally like the same, but it's actually not. You see, when you respond to the commandments in the New Testament without faith, without relying on Jesus having kept them and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do them, and without a complete assurance that you're accepted by uh, God, then you become focused on your obedience. And if you're a person of real honesty and you have a sensitive conscience, it will crush you. And when it crushes people, they end up doing one of three things. They either uh, come to church and they feel awful. They come to church and church just reminds them that they do not measure up. And they look around at the rest of the people who are smiling and they say, this doesn't work for me. Whatever's working for them, it doesn't work uh, for me. Some people just leave the church uh, when they get to this place. But there's another way that people deal with their guilt and their shame. There's actually two ways, because when you live under guilt and shame for a long period of time, it will harden you. Now, one of the things that happens, and this we see in Jesus' day, is that you will dumb down what the law actually requires of you. You will make it a matter of external obedience. So they tell themselves, I haven't committed physical adultery, but they burn with lust inwardly. I haven't told an outright lie, but I exaggerate to make myself look good. Um, like the lawyer that Jesus encounters uh, who wants to narrow the definition of what it means uh, to be a neighbor so he doesn't have to love as many uh, people. That's what this hardness does. But there's another kind of response in the hardening. And it's simply uh, to surrender to the self-deception that actually you're doing everything that God requires of you. That, of course, is hypocrisy. It's, uh, it's a dynamic that happens within our hearts that's just like black ice in the winter. It's just about impossible to actually see until you're in the slide. But the problem runs deeper because uh, it's not just that this burden is ultimately unachievable, but it involves at its deepest level a slavish fear. And it uh, involves embracing an identity 
that is different than the one the gospel gives us. It's an obedience that arises out of fear. It's a slavish obedience. Now, our spiritual fathers who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith wrote one of the most pastorally significant statements in chapter 20. And we, we read that over the last uh, few weeks when they uh, write about the liberty that Christ has obtained for us. And it says this, and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of a slavish fear, but a childlike love and with a willing mind. This is such important truth to grasp. And seeing it in a practical way in your own life will help you see, really, uh, whether you have slipped away, even if you're a Christian, you can slip away from your identity as a child of God. You can slip away from the freedom and confidence you should have as God's child into a place of bondage and fear. Jonathan Edwards kept something called a blank Bible. We call it a journaling Bible, and there's lots of fine journaling uh, Bibles. And and in it, um, uh, he made notes, his meditations, his thoughts, things that uh, captured uh, his eye. And when he got to 1 John 4, 8, uh, where we read, there's no fear in love, he wrote this. Love is the gospel principle. He used the word evangelical, but that's what he means. The, the gospel principle and fear the legal principle. Love is the spirit of adoption and servile fear is the spirit of bondage. The evangelical principle gives boldness uh, and servile fear keeps at a distance and prevents boldness of access. In other words, it doesn't permit you in- intimacy with God. Perfect love casts out uh, fear. The spirit of adoption casts out fear because it naturally assures the person that they have good standing uh, with uh, God, of being his child, of being loved and accepted by him. And it opens the way for boldness and nearness of access uh, to God. So, What Edwards is saying is that, you see, if you're the principle out of which, the motive out of which you obey is fear, then you are deeply insecure. And what you expect if you disobey is punishment. You might ask, isn't there a godly fear? Doesn't the scripture command the fear of the Lord? And yes, it is does. That fear, the fear of the Lord, is very different than this servile fear. The fear of the Lord is an adoration and love for God that includes awe and reverence and a desire to honor and worship uh, God because we see uh, his uh, majestic uh, glory uh, and the wonder of his mercy and love. And it awakens a desire uh, within us, a response uh, toward God's heart. The doctrine of adoption 
is one of the most important teachings in the Bible. It accompanies our justification because what it tells us is about the Father's heart and house. In justification, we are taken uh, to God's law court as guilty criminals, and we're dismissed as pardoned and righteous. But in adoption, we are taken from the law court into the living room. And there we have the warmth and the intimacy that a family has in that space. How do you live this out? Well, Paul says in verse 6, it is by faith working through love. Faith energizes love. And religious moralism, it doesn't matter whether it's focused on obedience to the Ten Commandments or uh, religious uh, duties or seeking to achieve even biblical virtues, nor irreligious law-breaking. Neither of them can lead to this because both of them at their heart are selfish and they're insecure. So the choice for us in our living is either fear or faith, and they lead to two entirely uh, different uh, mindsets, two different ways of living. It's so important what I'm about to say to you that I want to I label it. This has been such an important part of my own seeing and understanding the gospel, and I like to call it having gospel fluency. You need to be able to talk about real life in terms of the gospel. You need to be able to see how you live day to day and how living one way is a reflection of your adoption, of your identity as a child of God, of living out of a life of uh, faith, of love working uh, itself out uh, through faith, energized by faith, and a slavish uh, mindset of an orphan who is actually distant uh, from God as moved by fear in their obedience. And this leads to just either the identity of, as a son or the identity as a slave leads to actually defining everything that's important in the Bible in a different way. So for a slave, uh, faith is the effort to believe without doubting and love God so he will accept you. And see, when you have a doubt, you really wonder whether God accepts you in your doubts. But for a child, faith is the discipline of remembering and living as an accepted child of God. For a slave, obedience is avoiding major sin and following rules of ethical uh, behavior. And for a child, obedience is primarily the growth of the fruit of the Spirit, and Christ-like character. A slave has a compulsive obedience. They obey God and moral codes out of a fear of rejection. There's a compulsiveness, a drivenness to this approach to morality. And they set unrealistic goals, and there's lots of self-criticism. And this often can happen for those who take seriously the importance of confessing their faith. It can just be an act of self-criticism instead of coming honestly into the arms of God, knowing that your sins are pardoned. 
and receiving from God a fresh awareness of his forgiveness and fresh empowerment uh, from the Spirit. Slaves, people with a slave mentality, hide. They have lots of strategies to hide their inner and outer failings from themselves and from other people. They gossip, they blame shift, they get angry at other people, especially people of different races, classes. They're defensive. And of course, this can grip an entire church and make it hard for church to love people who are different than themselves. Whereas a child is open and transparent and uh, they're, uh, they're free from having to put up a front. They can be themselves. It's a mark of health in the life of a church when you can come and be honest that you're going through a terrible time, when, when it's okay uh, to weep or be profoundly sad and not to have to uh, fake a smile uh, with uh, people and to be a church that uh, welcomes such people that if they need space, you grant them uh, space. You let them know you love them, but you don't force them to be something they're not. Slaves are controlled by other people's opinions. Their expectations and the approval of others becomes their actual moral standard. And when they get away from other Christians, they lapse. They're a different person when they're not with other people, although some people will do this with the people that they know the best. Uh, but they would never behave the way they do uh, with those people, usually the people they know the best, with other people. They just simply, they would never do that because people's view of them is so important. And a child has integrity and courage regardless of who is watching. The only person whose opinion matters is the father's. And they can honestly say, as Paul does, Who cares what other people think? That's real freedom when you're not bound to other people's expectations. The Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't die so that you would be respectable, responsible, or nice. And so if you're a parent, I want to say to you, look, think about this. When I uh, had young children, of course, I'm a pastor, and so my kids were pastor's kids, and they were held to a higher standard. I can assure you, people in the church let them know that. I would think, you know, their bad behavior reflects on me. It embarrasses me, and people will think less of me. And you see, it was pride and fear that drove my parenting. Ground your parenting in the gospel. Learn how to talk to your children about their hearts, about what it is that pulls their hearts to make the choices they're making in their bad behavior. Help them to see that. Pray for the Spirit's work uh, in them. The Lord Jesus Christ alone in his death on the cross offends. He offends because the cross not only tells us how bad we are, 
but what Jesus alone must do for us that we cannot do for ourselves. That's the offense of the cross. And it's the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, send your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts. Free us from self-deception. Free us from the burden of moralism. Lord, bring us into the joyful freedom of the sons of God who have deep assurance, great boldness,